Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. All right, Flip Your Lid audience, thank you once again for being part of what we're doing to help people know different modalities in the tre- in the therapy world, but also just what's happening when it comes to trauma, what's happening to people all over, how we're dealing with everyday life, whether it's a pandemic or not. And so today, I have a new friend, everybody. I have a new friend, Dr. Kira Mosley-Hobbs. And she has a PhD in EDD in higher education in academia world. And she has done so much, including writing a book called More Than a Fraction. So Dr. Hobbs, thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for considering sharing with us your wealth of knowledge. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to see where it goes because yeah, I don't I don't prep for anything because I just feel like let's see what happens. See, so that's the way that's where I am. And so yeah. and, and I think it's because of more of an aggressive stance. And there's certain people who very cognitively they really need to know what's gonna be asked. And I don't yes. I can't give them questions because I don't know. Right. Right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so we're going to have some fun today. Yeah, we're going to have some fun today. So the first question, which we do know is going to be asked, the only one we, we've guaranteed to ask, is tell us what flipped your lid and what measures you've had to take in your life to reconnect to who God really says you are. So what flipped my lid is deciding to dive deep into the American history of chattel slavery. Right. Because we always kind of look at it overarchingly as an umbrella. We don't really talk much about the detail of it. I feel like even within the African-American community, we've kind of accepted the historical telling of it at face value. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot about it we didn't question when we were told that we were wiped of our culture. We were wiped of our language. We were wiped of our history. And, you know, the very existence was just slavery in itself that we was okay with the use of language regarding our ancestors that they were slaves rather than calling them enslaved, which kind of talks about their condition rather than their being or their personality. So what flipped my lid was diving deeper into it and realizing that there was so much I didn't question that is not necessarily the truth, even that we know. Um, you know, the brutality of slavery is the truth, the pulling of teeth, the whipping mm-hmm. to death, the, the different tools used to whip and punish people. All of that was true. But then I learned to kind of question the other narratives about, you know, we had no culture and, and we were taught everything and, and things like that. But what really, really flipped the lid was finding out how much trauma was still in there, just reading and researching the subject. It's trauma triggering at all times. And I always say that it's self-inflicted trauma that's necessary for me to do the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is profound. Thank you for sharing that. And so the idea of understanding the transgenerational trauma that is there, how pervasive it is. Yeah. And, you know, with any trauma, a lot of people, whether it's like a, a simple trauma as a child, you know, if someone gets support around it, it can just be a bad experience. If it gets invalidated, then it's another layer of a trauma, right? Yeah. Validation is a form of trauma. So we're talking about, you know, centuries, of, centuries of people based on race being told that they didn't go through what they uh, what they did, being yeah. told to get over it, yes. being told there are no side effects of it, there's nothing happening today. When you're mm-hmm. living in it every day, how do you regulate your emotions? Because really, you're not even allowed to be angry about it, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. we're assumed to be angry at all times. And when I say we for the listeners, um, when I say we from this point forward, I'm, I'm referring to like the African-American community. Right. Yeah. Right. And and that and that's the thing. That's part of the punishment mentality. That's part of the bullying, which is another form of trauma mentality, is to tell you that you can't have your emotional reaction to how you've been treated. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. And Correct. so I know we struggle even to hear this if a woman is in a marriage being abused by a narcissistic man. But we're better about that than we used to be. But we even struggle with acknowledging the woman's going through that. Right. 
we struggle with not blaming her. And so, but when it comes to African-American community, there is a continuous, overwhelming victim blaming that's happened. It is. And I'm glad you brought up the term narcissist, right? Because one of the things that we're doing with the More Than a Faction Foundation is we're kind of diving deep into the history. And so what we're doing, if the story of America was a 20 page chapter book, let's say as a society, we think we got to chapter three or four, only to find out that chapter one was written completely wrong and we have to go back and do it again. So that's the way we think at it. And so we're going back to chapter one and we're looking at the same history, but we're doing it from the point of view of the enslaved Africans and the displaced uh, indigenous people. And we say, if we take the same historical context, the same historical information that we're taught, and we look at it again and we say, how would the enslaved Africans describe this history to us? How would the indigenous people describe this history to us? Mm -hmm. We see how much needs to be questioned and how much more information is actually out there to still receive. So within that work, we just, we're actually just exploring, we're exploring doing um, another study or, or another project of the potential that as a nation, we were built on narcissism. Yes. That the doctrine of discovery that basically said that the English had a right to the world Mm-hmm. Um, was brought over, you know, in all the different countries everywhere. And, and but we're just going to focus on America. It's brought over here. And then we found ourselves on narcissism. Mm-hmm. And so if you know signs of narcissism, and I'll let you break it down, you know, Dr. Yeah. Honeycutt for the right. audience. If you know the signs of narcissism, it sounds like, um, you know, America and America being synonymous with like white, America's mm-hmm. relationship with black and brown communities. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if you want to summarize narcissism for your audience. Yeah, sure. And I know a lot of them know about it. So narcissistic people have an incredible ability to deflect and a horrific ability to reflect. And so a lot of us can have narcissistic traits. So think of it this way. If you hear something that's contrary to what you were raised believing, there is a struggle for you to take in that new information. Right, so we automatically immediately for our way of staying connected to our childhood or to our family name, we automatically would be like, Well, that's not true. That's I was taught the Bible said this, I was taught this was what safety is, right? And so people stay right there. So a lot of us have ability to build a bridge from that and be able to take in new information and have a panoramic view of what someone else is experiencing. That's the human condition. Narcissistic people are so ingrained in what they believe and they will not only hang tight to only what they believe, they will convince you that you are psychologically damaged and insane for trying to believe anything differently. Yeah. They gaslight, they manipulate. Their way is the only way. And unless you want to live in fear and danger and you'll live in fear anyway around them, you will adapt to them instead of them adapting to a new idea. Right. And it's and it's the blatant denial of clear evidence. Like yes. for the listeners, let's go beyond opinion. When something is clearly evidence, like the narcissism that we're seeing a little bit is if you go outside with someone and I point up to the sky and it's raining and I say water is falling from the sky and your narcissism says, no, it's not. Right. And I'm like, no, really, water, you can feel the water. It's falling from the sky. Narcissism mm-hmm. says, well, I don't think it is. So it's not. Right. And it's it's the blatant disregard for That's it. Right. And we see that in the relationship between, you know, America and black and brown communities. Right. And again, if you are raised in something and you're raised believing something particular, especially when it comes to religion, race, something really important to you, a new idea coming in, there's an understanding, there's a, there's a, your ego gets involved and you defend. Yes. And that's, that's the ego's now. job. Right. right. That's the ego's job to defend, but we don't change if we defend, right? right? We have to get uncomfortable. And so you're helping us to really not have to go into a place of guilt and shame about it. It's just about, can I look at what you're presenting to me in a panoramic view with an open mind? I don't have to take it in. I don't have to do anything, but can I at least listen to you? And that's the starting place of things being able to change. Right. And so our methods as an organization is when we go back and look at the same history from the point of view, we're not trying to attack 
uh, white community, white communities or white institutions, but we are trying to attack white supremacy. Right. But we're trying to do it in a way that we're not beating you against the head with it, because if we do, it's you immediately shut down. And unfortunately, because of the narcissism United States, you actually can shut down and just choose not to ignore it. Like that's our history and why we haven't dealt with um, why we say that the history of slavery is unfinished business and and, you know, racism is something that we can't deal with it because it's the narcissism allows us to deny it. And just say we're not going to deal with it and not dealing with it really is painful for the black and brown communities, but it doesn't affect the systems that's been put into place. So we'll do certain things like we'll ask questions. So if I'm speaking at an event and someone will say, well, we know that the slaves that were here were happy. And I'll say, but but you have records of four enslaved people who ran away. Do you run away from happiness? Right. You know, and we, so we try to do things that make people think and decipher it and, you know. Right. And what's my need to believe they were happy? Right. 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 Yeah. Right. When, when even at any point in time in life that if you feel trapped for any reason, there's no happiness. There's a there's a, a traumatic reaction. Right. Like, I, I don't like the fact that it keeps snowing. And, and the reason why I think is people, I feel trapped. Yes. So take someone's entire family and trap them. Trap in, them. Right. And what they're doing and then tell me they're happy. Right. No one will be. No one. Right. Yeah. And then you point to, here's another example. Then you point to historical documentation. All the historical documentation is written by and deciphered by the, the white community and the enslavers, right? So you're showing me documentation of the people who were trapping right. and say that, well, they asked the enslaved, are you happy? Mm-hmm. And they said that the enslaved said, yes, master, I'm happy. And mm-hmm. so we'll say something like, mm-hmm. if I hold a gun to your face and I say, when I ask you this question, yeah. say, yes, I'm happy. That's right. That's right. And then I ask you, are you happy? What are you going to do? I'm going yeah. to say, yes, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah. yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. But that's the wrong question. The question mm-hmm. is not, you know, and then when you come back and you say, I asked this person if they was happy and they say, yes, mm-hmm. they're happy. That's the wrong question. So our organization yeah. said, what's the right question? Mm-hmm. So the right question is not, did they say they were happy? The right question is, who told them to say that they were happy? Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Hey, in, a, in a modern day example of that, there's a there's a large hospital here. And what they do when it comes time for, they give, they give out employee surveys. But your bonus is based on the satisfaction of the sap sur- surveys. Right. So everyone's bonus is deci- is based on if they get back that they're, yes, they're happy working in this hospital. So yes. of course you're going to, because on the money, of course you're yes. going to say you're happy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you are. Yes, right? exactly. Right. Exactly. So, we, so we can grab that, but we have such a hard time grabbing it because of the, the barrier of thinking that somehow the blood is on my hands instead of looking at how can I lend a hand? How can I be a part of this? Right. Right. So tell us a little bit more about your foundation, because you and I got to know each other because you're doing this amazing thing in March in Virginia, Virginia Tech. And it is a big deal. And please help us understand. I I know you have put so much in this. Help us understand what you're doing that's so different. Yeah, it's a big deal. So we were inspired to do this bit. It's a Virginia Tech. It's called 1872 Forward, celebrating the history of Virginia Tech. So Virginia Tech is on the site of a former plantation, and it was called Smithfield. And I am a descendant of one of the people that was enslaved there. Mm-hmm. And so I had st- we had started working with Virginia Tech, helping them because they were ready to not only learn about that history and talk about that history and embrace that history, but they really wanted to embed that history into their culture. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to introduce it to faculty. It wasn't just about, you know, the Office of Diversity Inclusion, which is a fantastic office because they've been supporting us through all of this. But it wasn't about that. They want to find opportunities for the faculty in chemistry to somehow include it. Like we are in conversations right now. We're going to do a panel discussion with their school of medicine, who's like, we can use this to teach students about how generational trauma affects the health of people and the health that you deliver. Um, and so, you know, even the school, so that's the type of work that Virginia Tech is doing. It's like, how do we really embed this into our culture? Um, how do we introduce it to all incoming freshmen? And then what do we need to consider? Because one of the things that we've learned in our own work is that 
you know, when you're working with different demographic of students and Virginia Tech is really developing the methods of how to best do this on this campus is that when you introduce the history of slavery on site, because they still have three original buildings that were part of the plantation, two of the main plantation houses and a slave cabin is still on site. Um, And part of their programming is that they want all freshmen to to go to those sites at least once within their freshman year, whether it be part of a course or part of a conference or part of a workshop. And so one of the first things we said to Virginia Tech was in doing that, you have to consider your demographic now. You can't just take African-American students and walk them into a plantation house. There's a preparation that has to go on because that's traumatic for them. Not to say that it's not traumatic for the European students, it probably is, but there's a special consideration in in terms of walking into a structure like that, what's the potential inducing trauma that you need to prepare for or deal with? And so the event in March, we are just addressing the fact that Virginia Tech is a contested space. They used to have the indigenous people there, which was the Monacan and the Tulo. Uh, the Shawnee used to come around who were displaced and genocide in the area. Um, the Europeans were there. You had the Preston family who was asked by you know King George II to pretty much colonize about 120,000 acres into that area. Yeah. And then in 1759, they purchased their first 16 enslaved Africans to really start developing that land and build those houses. So you have these three contested histories that have never been addressed. And we're bringing them all together the weekend of March 24th through the 26th at Virginia Tech to address those histories. Um, we have this great program Friday night at the Moss Art Center, and you're going to have performances by the indigenous community, mm. um, by the African-American community, including the great Virginia State University Gospel Corral. I'm yeah. really excited about that, um, as well as brief presentations by the European community that's just going to talk about their history. And so it's fantastic. It is actually open to the public. You just have to register and you can go to our website at morethanafraction.org to register for that event. I believe registration closes on March the 4th. March the 4th. So we have plenty of time. Thank you for that. And and can we go a little bit? Well, let me tell you this first. I want to go a little bit more about how it, it, it came to fruition because that's a lot of hard work. Yeah. I, I'm so excited to hear that Virginia Tech is doing this with med students. And I shouldn't have to be this excited because it's the exception. Yeah. Right. Which is yeah. why it's so exciting to hear because it's the exception and, and understanding, you know, the connection of, of, you know, our vagus nerve and our overall health and trauma and, and ACE score and all those things. So that's amazing. So my opinion, if they were going to walk those students into a gas chamber from the Holocaust, right. they would know to prep them. Right. So why, why do we view it so differently when it comes to people that not that long ago were enslaved? Because the buildings and sites were retranslated after slavery in order to ensure the comfort and the safety of European descendants. So before we're reintroducing it now that these are not just wedding sites or somebody's former house, this is a location of labor camps. These are, this is locations of the death of people. This is mm-hmm. where people worked until they died, until their mm-hmm. fingers, you know, cur- uh, curled in itself. So the arthritis was something that we couldn't even imagine in modern terms. Like right. this is the type of things that happen here. And we've been able to ignore that for so long. And so Virginia Tech, you know, with the trauma, even yeah. as an institution, Virginia Tech has to remember now, like you said, that this is the African or the African-American version of the Holocaust. Right. It is of Auschwitz and all of that. And right. so they have to remember that knowing that they are coming off of a tradition and a culture where when you're thinking about where you're going to have a wedding, you will consider a plantation. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's amazing. So h- how did, because I know you wrote the book More Than a Fraction. Yes. And... Is that part of how you became a part of all of this? Did that that lead to you being a part of what they're doing at Virginia Tech and the conference that's coming up? Yes. So more than a fraction is actually it's a book based on the true story of my ancestors, the Fraction family. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I say that, I know half of your listeners are tuning out and saying, "Oh, another family legacy book." But I promise you, it's not that. Okay. Right. So what happens? 
is that it's written like you're reading a movie. And the reason why I did it that way is because as I was doing the research, I was telling the story to my son, who was probably like 10 at the time. Yeah. And he was playing soccer and he was playing baseball and he was playing basketball. And as I was doing the research, I was explaining it to the other parents on the sidelines with me. And it got to a point where all of the parents are coming to practices and games and they're all huddled around me for story time for this story. Wow, that's amazing. And, and my son said to me when he was little, he said, you should just write the book so you can stop telling the story and people can just read the story. So the story is written like a movie right. um, and it tells the story of the Fraction family who was enslaved at Smithfield, which is now Virginia Tech. But it's mm. a very, it's a story that you don't expect. In a way that there's a part of the story where two brothers who escaped to join the Union Army come home in a 30-day furlough and they end up with a pistol-drawn standoff with their former enslaver. And so that's what I'm going, that's okay. what I'm going to end you at. I'm right. telling you with a cliffhanger. Right. Um, right. That it's not just sadness, brutality, and slavery, but the, the story that Virginia Tech has connected to them is a phenomenal story. Okay, that sounds really good and very enticing. So it's part of it too, I read a little bit about it, is that these brothers, that they are, the last name is Fraction, and then they're, they are considered three-fifths of a person. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, but we're not too sure if that's why they got the name Fraction. So one interesting thing about Fraction is that we've been looking for other descendants of the people enslaved there. We have yet to come across a modern person with the last name Fraction or whose family is a fraction that we can't trace back to Smithfield. Right. Okay. Um, and so for the listeners who don't know, African-Americans, our last names to, uh, most likely come from our enslavers um, yes. historically. And so at emancipation, a lot of people took on the names of their enslavers. Um, it was just an easier thing to do because you had to pick a surname. And the other thing was to identify which plantation you came from as you tried to find the family that were sold away. So yeah. it was also like a label identifier. Yeah. But the fractions, that's not the case. There is not an enslaver, a European enslaver in the anywhere near the area or anywhere that we find in the South with the last name fraction. So it's possible yeah. that fraction was a reminder to them that they were three-fourths a person. Right. The other possibility is that the linguistics of the time uses the word fraction synonymous with the word fractious, which means likely to quarrel or likely to fight. And if you add that to the story of the two brothers, it's possible it that the family was labeled as a little bit of troublemakers. Yeah, I, they should, I should change my last name if that's the case. <laughs> that's great. I love that. Now, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that knowledge. But I also was thinking this for our listeners to hear this, those who are... are basically white, to think about the idea of if you go to church and you see if someone you know there or your pastor and they don't say hi to you. And for a minute, you feel like you don't matter. You feel less than human. You feel invalidated. Imagine feeling that every day mm -hmm. for no reason besides skin color. Like that's not even the right, right? There's no, just to have some empathy for what this is like for people to be considered a fraction of a person. Right. Right. We can't handle that. People can't, right. you know, your barista doesn't say hi to you and, and we cry. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. historically, when you go try to find these people, you know, when you get to right before the civil war, you know, 1860 census and before is that you have to look at as, you know, estate inventories, you have to look at the list of things that the slave owner owned in order to find those people by only a first name because the, the last names didn't exist at this time. Wow. So when you're looking at records and you see, you know, African-American or African people, depending on how far back you go, um, who are listed after cattle and before silverware. Okay. Um, before is, is silverware. Yes. Yeah, it's beyond humbling. Yeah. And I think that that is why it's so good for anybody who's willing to take the time to have a, a modicum of empathy, to listen, to understand when people say, you know, why are you so upset about this? It was so long ago. Yeah. And just it's still traumatic. It. It's still traumatic. And first of all, it wasn't that long ago. And, yeah. you know, I think it was in 1960s before African-American women had the right to vote. Yes. Like, like we're not talking that long ago. 
No. Right. There, there's so yeah. it's such a ripple effect of what's happening for just yeah. to have a again, just just a moment of of empathy can really lead to something bigger. Yeah. Because it's like in the African American community, one of the things that you want to remember is when you say that it's so long ago, we're actually thinking about our grandmothers who were born mm. in the 1930s, especially if you're yeah. around, even if you're like 40 or 50 years yeah. old right now, right. your grandmother was probably born in the 1930s, which yeah. means her grandfather was likely an enslaved person that yeah. she would have known or that right. they would have known. And as much as, you know, your grandmother talked about her father and her father, so did ours. Right. Um, and so, you know, we hear those stories and we see what segregation did to their your grandparents. So like for my grand my grandmother, I just will always be haunted about the glaze over look that will come across her face when, um, you know, you know, black men or African-American men are shot by police. And she would just it was such a trauma trigger that I would get teary-eyed because she would just kind of look out into space. Even if she was looking at you, she was gone. Yeah. And she would say things like, you know, things haven't changed. And, you know, back in my day, you know, the white men used to knock on the door and they would come get one of the men and then you would never see him again. And we just never talked about what happened to him. And that is traumatic to her. And thinking about that glaze over look is traumatic to me. Yes, it because is. Because now I have the same trauma trigger when I'm watching the right. news. But when you don't understand the black reaction to police shootings, it's because we've been warned about this right. by our grandmothers who were warned yeah. about it by their grandmothers and it's still going on. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And that's a generational trauma. Yes. Yeah. So is there anything about the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic slave syndrome that you would want our listeners to know? I would say that post-traumatic stress disorder is a disorder that comes from an experience you had yourself. Mm -hmm. Post-traumatic slave disorder is a trauma trigger that you don't even know why it's there because it's genetic. Like you can't not being able to figure out why you feel that way makes it almost impossible to address it and try to, to get past it or get over it. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent that you feel like your post-traumatic slave syndrome is systematic. So there's nothing that you can do as an individual. There is no therapy in the world as an individual mm-hmm. that you feel like can help you with that. Mm-hmm. It requires a change in the system. And so when you hear cries from the African-American community mm-hmm. or the change in the system, that's as close as we can get to, to mental health and therapy on the subject of post-traumatic slave syndrome, I believe. So, yeah. for example, with the work that I'm doing, I, I read a lot more literature actually written by formerly enslaved people themselves. Mm-hmm. There are times when I have woke up in the middle of the night crying because I just dreamed that someone slit my throat. And yeah. like I was back. I was back in the time I saw myself and I saw a, a black man in tattered clothes yelling at the top of his lungs. And then I just feel my throat being mm-hmm. and I don't and so it's the trauma is so heavy in me is I don't know yeah. if I just saw somebody's memory or if it was just a dream because of something that I read. Yeah. I can't find those lines that much anymore. Yeah. I bet not. Yeah. And it, and it's it's just so thick and I it's just I appreciate you saying that that the treatment for it is more the system. It's about fairness and justice. Yeah. Right. And that right. it is you know, the small things that people can do each day is to ask questions instead of just saying, well, why do you run? Why don't you yes. get on your knees when a police officer puts a gun in your face? Yes. Right. Like, again, if you understand the history, if also if you understand, you know, trauma responses and what happens in yep. the sympathetic, you know, you would understand fight or fight in that, you know, everybody based on their own history are more likely to go into fight, fight, fall or freeze. And also, just so you know, when you're unsympathetic, you don't, you can't hear. So someone's going to have a gun in your face and say, get on your knees and you truly can't hear them. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to say, well, why don't they just dot, dot, dot? That is not the right statement. Like yeah. it's about asking questions and being curious and compassionate. And that's with anything. Yeah. Because we're warned about that situation as children. Yeah. 
So if you get to the point where there is a gun in your face or the police look afraid or any of those scenarios where people are like, well, why didn't they just do this or go through this checkbox? It's because of probably the first trauma trigger or the per- first thing you're thinking is, it's finally happening. Yeah. Because yeah. you're expected to happen at some point in your life. So first is the shock that it's finally happening here. Am I about to die today? Right. And that is though, and right, and that's for interactions that other communities get to see as as normal. We don't. Mm. Yeah, I can't fathom seeing systems as police as as all safety, like all safety. I'm not going to say I would never call the police, but if I'm calling the police, I've made a risk assessment. Yes, and that's the difference, right? It's a risk assessment. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I had years ago, I, I got pulled and, and I had a friend with me um, and we were on our way to like a mental health conference, right? Get CEUs, all that stuff. And got pulled over. She got out of the car to walk to a bathroom. So I got out of the car to walk back to the highway patrol and tell them what was going on. Now, I know better than that. I don't care. I just did it anyway. And he was just pointing at me and told me to get back in the car. So you stop that. So you get your, get in the car now. So I, I just looked at him kind of like this, got back in the car. I'm emailing my attorney through all of it. All right. No big deal. Some point when all these things were happening within the news and there's such difficulty and people were dying. And mm-hmm. I just put on Facebook just that story and said, I know that I can walk back without any fear because of, because I look white. And did right. you, you didn't have any fear when you did that? No. Well, first of all, no, I didn't have any fear. It wasn't smart because one, I'm, uh, I'm, I was a probation and pro officer. So I went to the police academy. I, I know better for the sake of his safety. I wasn't concerned right. about my safety. Okay. It's disrespectful to him, to me. I wouldn't right. worry about me because I don't have to. Right. But I know that my friends in the African American community do. Yes. And so me posting that and saying, hey, I just want you to know I can do that. With a clear, with no, with no issue, I know it's a respectful officer because he has to stay safe too. But I wasn't worried about my safety, and yeah. and people's response to that made something click for me of them just appreciating me, acknowledging that it's different for me. Yeah, you didn't have all they were asking. Assessment. Yeah, yeah, that's all they were asking. Yeah, so my son is sixteen, so we're getting we're getting ready to get a license, right? And I had to had to talk with him. I'm like, okay, so your license and registration, we're going to put it in this clear plastic thing. It goes in a glove compartment. If you get pulled over by the police, keep your hands on the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. He says, well, what have, what I do when they ask me for license and registration? He was like, do I tell them to get it out of my pocket and go in a glove compartment? I said, no, because then they can plant something on you. Mm-hmm. I said, what you got to do is try to move slowly, get your license, get your registration, mm-hmm. talk the police officer through it. He goes, but what if he still gets scared? And I'm like, listen, Either way, you have potential issue, and that's that risk assessment. If you tell the police officer to get it himself, it's very possible he would plant something on you because that happens also. But if you get it yourself, you don't know if you have an officer who's had, you know, who who gets triggered and is afraid and just immediately reacts to the loss of your life. And yeah. so his reaction was like, so either way, I'm dead. I said, yes, yeah. so you just pray right. the whole time. And I hate yeah. to laugh about it, yeah. but that's the type of conversation I have to right. have with him. You right. know, absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and it, it's just us acknowledging it is different. It's not a blanket statement towards every police officer. It's not a blanket statement towards every African-American person. It is just an understanding that it is different for you. Right. Right. And that's not to say, like you said, all police officers are bad because we've had situations where, you know, I've had to call the police for for a situation or a police officer had um, because we've been living in the same house since my son was like five. And so we live across the street from a police station. And I once had a police officer says, your son does so good. He's so focused. He's such a good kid. You know, and and the police officers in that police station know him because they've seen him come in and out the house. They see him going to work. And so they say he's such a good kid. But that's because they know him. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so I don't have issues with those police officers. But for ones who don't know him, he has to be prepared and aware of his position. Yeah. If everyone remembered, this is the truth. That the ability to feel safe is the primary need for your mental health. Yes. That is mental health as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, as a 90 year old, we have to feel safe and we have to feel safe in connection. 
So if people are constantly in situations for a variety of reasons that they feel unsafe, think what it does to mental health. And yeah. that is a generational trauma. Right, right. It's been unsafe since we got here. Yes. Yes. So how do you adjust? Do you, did you feel compelled to get like a higher level of education? Is there a, a higher responsibility you feel this on you? Is there, is there more of an internal pressure for you? It is. Um, one thing is in a lot of rooms, I'm expected to speak on behalf of all African-Americans. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm often the token and it was like, right. what do black people feel? And I'm like, I don't know. I can ask my cousin, but I don't know if we represent <laughs> all black. <laughs> no, if we represent all black people, like we can give mm-hmm. you a general idea, but we're not a monolith. We don't all think mm-hmm. alike in, in right. you know, things like that. But um, if I'm honest, you know, all of the, the degrees, including the doctorate was breaking ceilings yeah. to get in the room to affect change because I, I wasn't going to get in the room without it. I, I have to try to eliminate all of the check boxes that can be checked that makes me unqualified to be in the conversation. Yeah. And that just stems from racism. And very often I am the only, um, you know, African-American person in the room. And so one of the things that I try to balance with that is try to enter the room as authentic as possible. And I say try because my social conditioning is to assimilate to yes. uh, mostly white rooms. Yes. And I have to try to turn that off and be authentic. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. will be including things like letting my Baltimore accent come through, like saying Baltimore, Maryland, instead of Baltimore, Maryland. I see. I see. You, you see the yeah. difference? Oh, yeah, so I see the difference. Yeah. Yeah. So it's things like that to, to you know, let it to be authentic and even try to use some, you know, African-American vernacular English and and Mm -hmm. put that in the room and say things like, it's going to take a minute for me to answer that email, (laughs) you know, and just you kind of use that slang and let not just the black person be in the room, but to also Mm -hmm. let my blackness be in the room. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And did you feel like you had to get to a certain level of success before you could allow your blackness to be in the room? And feel safe. The, the more, yeah, the more success I have, the easier it is to um, to be in the room because people are are less inclined to eject me from the room mm-hmm. with the more success that I have. Right. Yeah. That's wow. the honest truth. Yeah, that's and that's some right that's some pressure. That is some serious pressure. But yeah. again, you're supposed to assimilate to that, become more, and not have any emotion about it. Right. Right. And the pressure of, you know, I have been told by by people doing the work at Virginia Tech who has gotten frustrated with me. And I'm doing air quotes here, folks, mm-hmm. revising history. Um, mm-hmm. I have been told that we were better off as slaves, you know, to my face. And then you have to I have to measure, like, am I going to react or not? <laughs> you know, yeah. what's right. the benefit of reacting? Mm-hmm. And, and I've learned to just pity people yeah. that can. Yeah. can do things and say things like that. I'm not even angry anymore. I feel sorry for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I find is by not reacting, that made them all the more angry. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It gets yeah. worse and worse in anger when I'm just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And the level of self-control. And also I think it's because you, you seem like you're very intuitive that when you're talking to someone who's narcissistic or is willing to make an open narcissistic statement, like you are better off in slate. That's an incredibly mm-hmm. narcissistic statement. There, there's no conversation. They're not looking to be anywhere but where they are. No. There's other yeah, people yeah. who would really, they're trying to expand. Mm-hmm. They were and looking they, for a reaction. Yeah, because they feel like they have control over you if you get upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a lot for you to have to sit with and decide moment by moment how much of yourself can be in that room and show up yeah. and how much responsibility you have to that. Yeah. And it's not just me. It's just a lot of, uh, of African-American and black people everywhere. And so it's, it's really important to understand that, that um, it's, it's African-American people are descendants of enslaved. I think we're living in a constant state of trauma. Yes. Reacting, not even just trauma, but reacting to it. And mm-hmm. I have no idea how we are mentally stable at all. At this point. So when I see violence in Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, I don't see wild people who don't want to help their community. I see stuck in a trauma trigger. I see completely off the rails and just don't know what to do because they've been stuck 
in that, you know, you can't live like that every day, all the day and come out. Okay. You can't. There's not enough programming you can do. That's not enough book bag drives you can have. There's not enough free lunch in the world. Mm -hmm. There's something deeper that has to be addressed Mm -hmm. in these communities, but it can't be addressed until the system is addressed. It's a system. Yeah. Yeah, and and to think about the system and think about, you know, you and I both are, are open about being Christ followers and being in the church yeah. and just wondering if you want to speak into that about what it's like to be, to find one, your personal relationship with, with, with God, but also with, in the church, the overall, the church, it is very, has very much been built in a white person system. Mm-hmm. And technically, it's, and I say white man, I, I literally mean a white man. Like, I'm not saying that to include women completely, even though it does. But it's, there's been a system that's been built over many years mm-hmm. that benefits one gender, one race, mm-hmm. and suppresses and oppresses everyone else. Yes. So what has that been like for you? Well, I would have been... I would have used the language that a lot of people use when they say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, right? But I've gone a little deeper than that because what happens is when you read the narratives of the formerly enslaved people themselves, and we're talking about from 1830, if they managed to escape and buy their freedom until after the Civil War. Here's what I realized, and we did a webinar on this, and the webinar was recorded. It's available on our website under um, uh, social outcomes and events. There's a link there is we did a webinar where we literally in the webinar explain that the enslaved people in their narrative had differentiated between Christianity and the white man's Christianity. Mm -hmm. They actually talk about it two different ways. They understood Christianity in its purest state and that the white man's Christianity, which is also a term that's probably these days synonymous, what we call white evangelicalism, um, is that they always, they often refer to as corrupted Christianity. And so they knew better, right? Mm. And when you, when you read that they knew better, then you think deeper into it. It's like, okay, how did they know better, right? Because we're taught that slaves couldn't read. Right. How in the world did they know better? And so now I'm questioning, not that all enslaved people can read, but probably right. more than what we expected could read and was hiding it. Because the only way to know better is to get your hands on a Bible and read it yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's a fascinating webinar because it's not me lecturing at you. Mm. It's me giving you screenshots um, of the writings of these formerly enslaved people and just reading it to you of of how they describe white man's Christianity, corrupted Christianity, how it was hypocritical and all of those things. So that's kind of my, my view at it as in, um, not so much adopting, you know, when people throw around the label Christianity, but it's kind of looking deeper into things, um, you know, to see if, it, if it's really there. And so yeah. even in my work, it's listening for what God says for you to do. So this whole March event is actually, is actually God's. When I tell you it's yes. actually God's, I mean, I'm just sitting on the couch watching Netflix and I'll get a thought in my head, like we need to end what gospel music with a praise break. And I'm like, gospel music? <laughs> There's no black choir in Blacksburg, Virginia. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking about it. And then what's brought to me in my emails, Virginia State University Gospel Chorale. And it was like, oh, okay, Lord, if that's what you want. And I reach out to the Gospel Chorale and I'm like, are you guys willing to bust down for this? And they're like, yes. And so when things just line up, it's like, yeah, okay. You know it's him. You, you know want. it's God. Yeah. 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 That is powerful. Yeah. And, and- when you read these letters from formerly enslaved people, right, who probably died enslaved, like this is yes. their experience, and then you compare it to where we are today. Similarities, differences, what stands out? Oh, a lot of similarities. Oh, it's so many similarities. Yeah. And I'm, when I tell you guys, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, It's heartbreaking to see that it's almost identical. Mm. That is almost identical in in some of the language that we're using, that they're still using. Um, Sometimes you'll read certain things and they are speaking to the future. And I'm like, they're talking to us. They were preparing for their descendants. And there are some documents where they are talking to us. And we're taught, you know, in American literature that, you know, Black American literature starts with the Harlem Renaissance. 
You know, if we let it start back with those people, oh my gosh, the beauty of that yeah. and that that those letters that they left for us, yeah. you know, in the future. Right. Yeah, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. You have a you have a quote on your on your emails that I want to read to everybody and just want you to talk about why you selected this to be your ending quote. And this is by Professor George Harding. There's an important job to be done, and everyone was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. I love that. Me too. Me too. I love that. That's that's been um, an email signature for me since like 2009. That is actually literally my professor in my undergraduate program. I had wrote a paper on the subject of history, and that was his response to my paper. Ooh, that's powerful. It reminds me of Victor Victor Frankel's famous um, quote about about people coming, like they came for. They came for the Jews and no one yes. did anything. They, it reminds me of that because there's so much discrimination that a lot of people, when they find themselves nightly in a very nicely in a spot in a box that they're, that they fit in and everything's okay there, that people want to stay there so, so quaintly because the step out of it means to become the woman at the well. It means exactly. to become, right? Yeah. It's dangerous. It's risky. Exactly. And I think a lot of that was in scripture is that that one of the underlying messages of love and charity um, is that we are the somebody because God is within us. Right. right. I am the great I am. And he says, you know, you are an extension of me. Mm -hmm. And so that quote in my signature is for whenever I get tired, whenever I get confused, whenever I get frustrated and I'll say, well, somebody should, somebody should. So every time I email I'm reminded that I am the somebody that should. Yeah. Because it's, you just don't wait for somebody else to do it. Each of us are the somebody that should. Each of us is the somebody that should. That is profound. And I'm so glad that you've answered the call for this. And there's nothing easy about it. And I know the amount of time and hours that you would have in a day if you weren't doing this. <laughs> would be exactly. substantial, right? But you're doing it. And, and God bless you. Or answering this call, and I hope everybody tags on to this and, and decides in whatever way whether they come to the conference in March or they read your book more than a fraction, whatever it is that they do something or they have a moment with somebody instead of telling them what they should be doing, they would ask questions. Yes, they would do something. Yeah, yes, just ask questions, just ask questions, absolutely, whatever it is. All right, you're amazing. I'm gonna put you in the hot seat. Real quick, all right? Okay. We're just going to do a few lighthearted questions. And so we're throwing you in the therapist hot seat. Here we go. All right. What is the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word chosen? Ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened. That Don't know why. I have no idea. Let's just go with ice cream. <laughs> what What is on your nightstand? Uh, bell hooks. Um uh, what is it? Killing Rage. Ah, gotcha. gotcha. I thought it was going to be Bell's ice cream for a second. I didn't know. <laughs> like, that's going to melt. Get that out of there. All right. What surprises people the most about you? That I'm strong physically. I'm huh? physically, physically strong. Yeah, I don't wear a lot of form-fitting clothes. And so I'm actually a little muscular underneath all of this. And nice. if somebody catches me in a tank top and a pair of shorts, they're like, wow. <laughs> I catch you. That's great. That's great. Yeah. What surprises you the most about you? My life. Mm. None of it makes sense. Um, I started off at 12 years old writing entertainment articles for the local African-American newspaper in Baltimore. Wow. Um, and then I worked at a antique store. And then I worked in the financial aid office at a college. And then I started doing work in history. Mm-hmm. And now I am working with museums on reinterpretations and Virginia Tech with changing their culture. So none of it lines up. None of it was related. None of it makes yeah. sense. 
Yeah. And it all happened because you reconnected. God said you are right. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It, it really, it just comes yeah. down to just following God. You guys, you never know. Yeah. You, you can't never know. I love it. So if you could give yourself a different first name, what would you give yourself? Maxine. Maxine. That was quick. <laughs> Maxine was going to be my first name. It's the, it's the name of uh, my aunt that helped to raise my father. And so he had told me one time that he would have named me Maxine. And I love my aunt Maxine. She's the sweetest woman in the world. Oh, I love that. And I would have loved to have been named after her. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. I love that. All right. What is your favorite binge worthy show? Um, my son has recently got me addicted to anime. And so I love uh, Demon Slayer. Right now I'm finishing Attack on Titans. I've also watched Hero Academia and probably some other things that perhaps the listeners, maybe Mm -hmm. some, um, have heard of, but I'm totally on an anime binge right now. Like I'm a 16-year-old kid. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Which is great to balance out all that you're facing. Stress of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible stress. Exactly. Last question for you. For now on, when you hear, flip your lid, what are you going to think of? I'm going to think of Dr. Kim Honeycutt, and I'm going to think of uh, the things that really change how you look at things and how you think about things in life and just really hold on and to marinate on that for a little bit. Mm, Beautiful. Perfect place for us. And that is so good. So good. So if people wanted to find you, their Instagram handle, is there a certain, your, your website, where would you want them to go? Yeah. I mean, your best bet is morethanafraction.org. I am on Facebook just under my name. And then on Twitter, I'm actually College Wizard because I created Twitter when I was working in the financial aid office at a school. So (laughs) if you want to find me on Twitter, it's just College Wizard. Um, You can follow me there. I'm more active on Facebook, on Twitter. I like to look at TikTok, but I don't post TikTok or Instagram. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're beautiful. You're amazing. You're, You're doing God's work and doing it well. Doing it thank really you. well. So thank you. And I appreciate you and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Keep going. That. Yeah, absolutely. So to all the listeners, thank you for being a part of this. I know you heard more than one thing today that would help you reconnect to who you really are. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.